0: Firepike Creative Group presents Aftermath Episode 24 1 2 3 Gabriel Princip visited the Phoenix Project's convalescent home on several occasions, each time in disguise as Professor John Bath. His hair dyed orange, his eyes colored green. He felt some shame for employing this ruse to gather information from the professor's aged, mostly blind, and hard-of-hearing mother, Caitlin O'Reardon. That shame was compounded by the fact that in the quiet moments he'd spent with O'Reardon, one of the Phoenix Council's founding members, he came to admire the older woman. And felt she trusted him. Gabriel regretted deceiving her, but he knew if his methods were less than honorable, his goal was righteous destroying the Phoenix Council and freeing the project's 3,000 citizens, 3,000 people who had little knowledge of their own imprisonment. O'Riordan leaned on Gabriel's shoulder, one hand on his forearm. He led the former ambassador down a back hallway. The air was cool despite the bright, beaming halogen lamps overhead such an unusual place,' Gabriel murmured, compared to the rest of the project. Caitlin leaned closer. "'Sorry, son?' "'Her cotton robe was damp. "'I'm sorry, Mom,' Gabriel spoke a little louder, "'pitching his voice up a semitone to that of the professor he impersonated. "'I was saying this place is... "'Well, it's an odd blend of analog and digital technology.' "'Areardon nodded. "'I've told you before, Jay.' Her clouded eyes gazed forward. One hand reached out, as if scanning for the hallway leading back to her quarters. I'm sorry, I… The Phoenix Project was constructed over time. Years. Decades. Block by block. Bit by bit. The technology and furnishings of the 21st century just piled on top of those from the previous one. She turned instinctively to her left, now guiding Gabriel more than he assisted her. I suppose that's what happens when you have so many designers contractors, you get, well, (laughs) this. Functionality with atrocious design. They stopped at the recessed, rectangular door to O'Reardon's room, her home at the center of the project. Gabriel looked over Caitlin's shoulder, then down at the red hair tangled with strands of gray and silver. She was beautiful in her time, he thought, and still charming. This realization led Princip to silently curse John Bath kind of a man, intellectual or otherwise, sacrificed his mother to a place like this. Why did the professor so rarely visit? Did other forces keep them apart, or was it some kind of secret shame? Mum, Gabriel asked, who did build the project? Distant, gray-green eyes gazed up at Gabriel, crow's feet at the side of O’Riordan’s eyes smoothed. We've treaded that ground many times, Jay. I know, I know. Gabriel insisted, wondering if his persistence hindered his disguise. But tell me again, please. Caitlin pressed an antiquated button on the side of the alcove. A sharp, mechanical sound inside the wall was followed by the fiberglass door sliding back into the left. O'Riordan walked into the large room she shared with two other women from the project. Gabriel followed behind her. Three uniform beds and three well-worn side tables were fixed to the right wall each pair about ten feet apart. Old tube televisions with curved screens hung from the ceiling in front of each bed. Coaxial and colored RCA cables ascended into a low-hanging ceiling that had been patched and repatched with gobs of drywall compound of varying consistencies. One of Caitlin O'Reardon's roommates, a balding, elderly woman in a hospital gown, stood near the far wall of the room. She gazed at the wall, into which two more television screens were built— Images depicting a picturesque beach setting at sundown lit up the screens. The refresh rate was poor. The image flickered. There was no confusing that the images were recorded. Artificial. Still, something about the screens was familiar. They reminded Gabriel of the backlit LED window in his lover, Danielle Devenu's, apartment. An overweight woman with a strangely thin neck and slender arms sat upright in the bed in the center of the room. She stared longingly up at the television screen before her, her eyes wide, her wrinkled skin flush. The woman's expression terrified Gabriel. He watched her cradle in an acrylic cup filled with water just below her lips. She didn't sip the beverage. It just dangled there as she gazed, transfixed at the old media footage, excerpts of documentaries about the 20th century. Jay, Caitlin's voice snared Princip's attention, half startling him. We're going to talk about this. Would you draw back the privacy shields? It had been some time since the young information specialist heard that word privacy. In the Phoenix Project, it was a commodity. In his profession, it was non existent. Sure, Mom. Gabriel watched his mother sit on the freshly made bed. He turned his back while the older woman disrobed and slid out of the skin tight, one piece bathing suit. He always found this part awkward, absurd. Neither of them should be here like this. A once brilliant woman passed her prime, her decline sped on by painkillers, toxins, and virtual reality routines, all designed to make her pliable, comfortable, then incompetent, irrelevant, and ultimately dead. Alternatively, Gabriel, who had barely known his own parents and was raised in the project by his grandparents, was orphaned young. He was now forced to resort to acts of subterfuge at great risk to himself in the name of liberty. He hoped the deception would be worth it, that it would save lives, spare the lower classes, and destroy the flawed, inhumane central processor. Gabriel pulled long, clunky plastic dividers out of the walls. He pulled another up from the floor. The walls snapped together at the side and overhead, creating a small, makeshift room where Gabriel and Caitlin could speak privately. There, Gabriel turned to see Orreed in pulling on a loose-fitting nightgown. there he said again, a little louder, now, can I get you something? A confused, blank expression fell over Caitlin's face, suggesting she didn't know what to ask for or why Gabriel was asking. Princip stepped closer, his eyes searched, imploring, Mum, who built the Phoenix project? I heard you before. Oreardon turned from Gabriel's gaze. She glanced at the drawer beside her bed. Gabriel knelt between Oreardon and the bedside table. He touched old hands where freckles darkened once pale skin. Please, he insisted. Caitlin relented. It was a fail-safe plan originally conceived in the 50s by the Americans, a think tank in the Carolinas. Gabriel scratched his chin, perplexed. The 50s? That wasn't long before the attack on New York City. No, Jay, Caitlin shook her head. A vein in her neck pulsed, then relaxed. Not 2050, the 1950s, the Eisenhower administration, more than 150 years ago. Gabriel's eyes widened. He leaned back, better understanding the amalgamation of design, construction, and technology. Who built it? It was engineered in America, the United States only revealed its existence to the Security Council after the Iranian-influenced wars in South America. The ongoing, unending conflicts between nuclear-armed countries in North America and the Middle East. There was a resolution, and... Gabriel stood, then sat next to John Bass's mother on the bed. He sensed her unease. He felt it. What did the Security Council do? Barreardon faced forward, eyes closed. They elected to join in the project's construction, but to keep it a secret from the rest of the world. Gabriel's thoughts raced. He took a deep breath. You said it was conceived in the U.S., but where? Where was it built? Who built it? Caitlin's cloudy eyes opened. She turned to Gabriel and half-shrugged. It was an almost youthful display of defiance, as if to show she had grown beyond caring. Mom... I have to know. You know I have to know. Why? Why now? So you can go off looking for your father? So you can join those… those dissidents? Get yourself thrown in the can? Prosecuted? Exiled? You want to get yourself killed? No. I won't have it. She shifted, turning from Gabriel to the bedside table. I won't be a part of that. Gabriel swallowed hard. I know. He reached out, held O'Reardon's arms. I already know. You've told me before that there is no hatch. But if we're. If everyone in the Phoenix Project is trapped, doomed, whatever. God damn it, I need to know where the hell we are. I need to know. <laughs> before Princip could finish, the former ambassador wrenched her right arm from his grasp and slapped him. The impact was surprisingly hard. Watch your foul mouth, John, Caitlin urged. That's your father talking. "'God bless him. It's beneath you.' "'Gabriel turned, felt where she struck him. "'He was frustrated, but also amused that his disguise and demeanor were so clever "'that John Bath's mother compared him to her exiled husband. "'I'm sorry, Mum. It's just... "'I can't let what's happening out here continue. "'Supplies are running out. Medicine is being rationed. "'Unfair decisions. I can't hear you,' O'Reardon interrupted. "'Yes, you can.' You always hear. You hear everything. No, no. Caitlin shook her head, her whole body. Nervously, she reached for the drawer. In one swift motion, Gabriel kicked the antique wooden table. Pill containers and personal effects shook and rattled inside. You don't need that. I need your memory intact, and that garbage dulls it. Caitlin shifted away from the young man disguised as her middle-aged son. This is why we never get along. Especially after your father. After... You think everything, no matter the cost, is about the truth. Sometimes the truth is shades of gray, malleable, painful. That's a political answer, Mom. Well, what did you expect? You say I'm like my father, but what would you do? If you had this knowledge and you could go do something, what if you could save lives? Oh, please, grow up, Jay. Caitlin lay back on the elevated bed, her head to a crisp, freshly laundered pillow. You're an academic, an atheist, and an objectivist, and you're an anarchist. You're not in the business of saving lives. Although Gabriel impersonated the woman's son, the severity of her words still hurt him. He admired the old woman and Professor Bath, maybe for different reasons. Caitlin continued. You only lived with us for a short time, but I hoped I had some subtle role in raising you, making you the man you became. She wavered and took a gasping, forced breath. But I can see now that Dean Rand has had more influence than I ever. Stop, Gabriel stood. He turned for the sliding portal in the makeshift wall. Maybe his persistence, his investigation, was doing more harm than good. I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry. I'll go. In that moment, in some strange, unexpected way, Gabriel Princip felt he was channeling his own mother, a woman he loved but never really knew. He wondered if after the several encounters he spent in disguise, getting acquainted with John Bass' mother, earning her trust, manipulating her, had he taken the place of her son? Had she taken the place of his mother? Jay, O'Reardon spoke behind him. Please, wait. The bridge was open. Mutant guards working for the gang lord, Silvio Jones, fled from both sides, some back into Manhattan, others into Brooklyn. Lieutenant John Running Bear navigated the military utility vehicle down the center of the bridge. Iku Kaminari crouched on the roof of the vehicle, watching passers-by, both human and mutant. His bow and sword were at his side, ever ready. Inside the cabin, General Benjamin Castro sat next to Running Bear, Castro peered out the passenger's side window, watching the turned-down heads and sad faces of those on the side of the road. He reflected on his recent encounters with the mutants, first La Signa Belle, then Santa Muerte. Both had supernatural powers, but they served different purposes, different masters. How was he going to explain such things to Cuddy and Bath? What would Devenu, Ganaya, and Chang believe? So, what's it like... Lieutenant Running Bear's deep voice broke Castro's train of thought. What? This Phoenix Project. Running Bear gazed straight ahead. The underground. Oh. I don't really know much other than what I've read and what I'm told. What do you mean? They don't let me out of the laboratory much. Actually, it's more a garage. Not that it would matter. Underground, I'm mostly paralyzed. Running Bear looked over. "'But you're not... no. "'And the more time I spend in the simulacrum, "'on the surface, my spine, my pelvis, "'I have more feeling in both. "'More mobility.' "'Hmm. "'Running Bear's eyes narrowed. "'The vehicle crawled. "'Castro saw the off-ramp down to Park Row up ahead. "'Pillars of blue-gray smoke rose between Park Place Tower "'and the other buildings along Spruce Street. "'The coffee's bad,' Castro said. "'Huh?' Running Bear maneuvered the wheel. The coffee in the Phoenix Project. It's awful. Like it's made by someone who doesn't know how coffee should taste. Running Bear grinned. That's one thing we had plenty of up in the mountains. Coffee. Tea. Tobacco. I gave up smoking after Bolivia, Kastro said, remembering his many bad habits that drove a wedge between him and his daughter. There are times I'd give anything for a cigarette. From a distance the general saw the city block around New York Presbyterian Hospital had burned to the ground. "'You sure he's all right up there?' Castro pointed at the roof. "'It's his way,' the lieutenant said. "'He saved my life,' Castro murmured. He thought of how strange it was that he considered the simulacrum as much a part of him, his consciousness, as his disabled human body floating in the personalization coffin in the Phoenix Laboratory.' He saved mine more times than I can count, Running Bear said. And I owe him. That's why before agreeing to help you cross into the city, I said you'd owed me a favor. Castro leaned close to the door but faced the lieutenant. But I thought Running Bear shook his head. I said I'd tell you about it later. He smiled. This is later. Castro nodded. I told you Iku was a professor at Syracuse. Yeah, Castro remembered the conversation from a day earlier seemed like so long ago now. I was just a kid when things really started coming apart, the lieutenant explained, but with limited access to reliable information, I don't think any of us in the Midwest really knew how bad things were here or what was going to happen in the Southeast. The professor was right in the middle of it. You told me the U.S. government was still active when you went into the mountain. Yeah, but marginally. Everyone in the government was trying to seize power. In some cases. That meant control of the federal government. In other cases, it meant going back home to wherever they were from, forming factions to defend their home states. Virginia, Louisiana, Georgia. Fine, Castro cut running Bear off. He pointed at the roof of the vehicle. But what does that have to do with him? I'm getting to that. It was a few years before I got to Washington, before I was sent to upstate New York. What? Castro asked. Weapons of mass destruction were used in Miami, Atlanta. If I recall correctly, there was confusion over whether those responsible were nationalist Americans or anti fascist globalists. It's always been unclear, but it wasn't one thing, I'm sure of that. First, it was skirmishes in the South, then, full on war from Tennessee all the way to the coast. Castro shook his head. How? How can that be? I'm a soldier, General, not an analyst. "'and not a politician. "'I'm just telling you what I know and what I've heard. "'I hear they call it the Great Southern War. "'Can you believe that?' "'There's nothing great about war,' Castro said. "'Protest is at the heart of American democracy, but... "'But the thought of Americans using weapons against each other,' "'his voice trailed off. "'Right. That's why I don't buy it. "'There has to be other forces at work here. "'Maybe the Russians, the Syrians or that nightshade terrorist cell. Castro remembered what the monster Santa Muerte said. She had followed his career closely, followed his exploration of the surface since he, Major McGillicuddy, and Dr. Bath had emerged on Liberty Island. While he didn't like the thought of being watched, Castro loathed Santa Muerte knowing about him, personal things, secret things. He played the conflict with Santa Muerte back in his mind. She said she did not serve Silvio Jones, but someone named Demi, bastard of Archons. Were these mutants involved? Castro asked. Running Bear glanced over. Maybe. Don't know. Probably. Anyway, in the midst of all this, Iku and his wife had a child. Not long after, fearing more attacks on New York, Washington, the eastern seaboard, the professor sent his wife and daughter west safer there? Castro asked. Running Bear nodded. From what we're told, the mutants have been unable to gain a foothold west of the Great Lakes, and the southern factions haven't followed the exodus that direction. Castro contemplated the breakdown in worldwide, national, and state leadership. The loss of communications and other infrastructure that could lead to dominant ethnic and regional enclaves and communities to abandon their homes. Esther, the old woman in the Brooklyn tent city, knew little about world affairs and the conflict in and around the five boroughs. Lieutenant Running Bear and Iku's experience filled in some of the gaps, but the general was beginning to long to speak candidly with someone who could provide context to link their narratives. Maybe, Castro hoped, he would find that in Manhattan. Or maybe, such a thing didn't exist. After Iku's family departed, Running Bear continued, the professor and some of his colleagues partnered together, abandoned everything and went into a bomb shelter underground. Running Bear slowed the vehicle. General Castro pointed to the right, beyond a column of hairless mutants with squat, muscular legs that somehow supported their oversized torsos. As they passed, Castro saw that one had a crooked arm growing out of its back. "'I had friends in the Lazarus facility,' Running Bear said. "'I had a life right up to the end.' "'Anyway,' he glanced over at the General.' serious look cast in stony features. Ten years in that hole in the ground, and Iku watched one of his friends die from cancer. The other went mad. I'm not sure which came first, you see? Running Bear brought the vehicle to a smooth halt. He looked at General Castro, as if to insist the seasoned soldier and diplomat's experience in the Phoenix Project was incomparable to the agony Kaminari felt losing his family and friends. Castro nodded. Yeah, Running Bear shuddered. He doesn't say much about it, but... Can you imagine what it was like at the end? Just photographs, memories of your family. Not knowing if you were going to open up the shelter and find the world was bathed in radiation. Yes, I can imagine. Running Bear gave the vehicle some gas. He pulled over to a clearing near the shoulder of the road. Here, he let the engine idle and banged on the roof. Off to his right, Castro watched the cloaked Iku Kaminari leap from the top of the truck. I want to show you something. Running Bear leaned forward slightly. He tapped on the digital radio console between them and dialed in a station. For a moment, Castro heard what he thought was an old number station, a shortwave radio station transmitting formatted numbers, sending coded messages to intelligence officers operating in foreign countries. Then, A keen, almost youthful voice came in clearly. Broadcasting live from downtown Boston, somewhere east of Eden in the land of Nod. Sending hope to anyone, everyone still out there. This is your ever-faithful host, the orphan in the mire, Enoch, transmitting on BGKSZ-FM. Castro stared at the speakers in the dashboard. He looked up at Iku Kamenari's blank expression, hovering on the other side of his window. The general's eyes widened. Major Leonard McGillicuddy and Dr. John Bath overcame the rubble and barriers around the entrance to Lower Manhattan. As they rounded the area near Battery Park, Cuddy walked behind the linguistics professor, who paused every few moments. Bath's head craned as if distracted then he appeared transfixed by some minor detail of their surroundings. "What is it?" Cuddy asked, clearly frustrated. "We've got to keep moving." John pointed at a hanging beehive fixed to the side of a building. "Apis mellifera," he turned his head, "and I can hear Pisaletra and Sternus vulgaris, birds in the park. Callisidae swarming in that puddle over there." Cuddy came up behind Bath, his slug thrower balanced in both hands. He waved, inviting Bath to continue speaking and compelling the philosopher and scientist to move forward. "'It's a good sign,' Bath explained. "'So far, we haven't observed an absence of animal, insect, or arthropod life. If I was to guess, I'd say it's early to midsummer, and the climate seems consistent with what we know about this part of the world. So what about the mutations? The rockheads?' Cuddy glanced up at cracked buildings with shattered windows." I don't know." Bath lifted a metal sign from the ground. It read, Broadway. Plastic and metal rain barrels lined the sidewalks. Overgrown trees and shrubs shed their leaves into streets filled with abandoned, burned out, and scavenged vehicles. Bath continued. But so far, we haven't seen any genetically modified life other than mutated humans. Cuddy's simulacrum made as much of a guttural sound as he could without a tongue. I'd hate to think the Rockheads are some evolved form of human. Dr. Bass's eyes widened. He stepped back. What? Cuddy said pointedly. You're surprised a big dummy like me knows a thing or two about evolutionary theory? Bass said nothing. Then, he grinned. What? Cuddy asked again. I just realize that the further we go along, I'm noticing minutiae. The little things. Cuddy shrugged. The pseudo-skin over your simulacrum has replicated your moustache, well, an approximation of your moustache. Cuddy pushed past the doctor, walking ahead into the cluttered street. It would seem that, in your mind's eye, your vision of your perfected self is, I don't know, fifteen years younger, with a plastic moustache. What's your point? Cuddy spoke without looking back. He stared forward but the simulacrum's enhanced peripheral vision allowed him to clearly see the blank faces peering from cloudy windows, a man in rags laying in a row of bushes. John walked towards Cuddy, careful to keep a few feet between them in case they were attacked. My point is, I find it fascinating that whoever crafted the robot bodies, this amazing, secret technology, allowed for the prospect of the user to reimagine themselves however they wanted, their best self. Yeah, Cuddy shot back. Well, For what it's worth, you don't look so impressive. Your hair is a shade brighter, but... I'm a scientist, Major. A realist. Don't you see? This is how you see yourself. What you want to see. Maybe from a better time in your life. Maybe. I appreciate the ad hoc psychoanalysis, Doc. But we've got to focus if we're going to rendezvous with the General. Yeah, you're right. Of course. They continued down the center of the street, dragging their feet through dust, dirt, and debris. Flecks of concrete and metal littered the gutters. John looked down at Cuddy's ankles, where the Major's coveralls were shredded. His pseudoskin was exposed. The gray-green fluid that seeped from his simulacrum was gone, presumably back into Cuddy's body. Perhaps, Bath thought, the nanomachines traveling throughout that fluid were swiftly repairing Cuddy's simulacrum, optimizing the Major, preparing him to withstand further conflicts. Or was it something else? You know, Cuddy swept the air with the old shotgun. Maybe these robots were designed to allow us to appear like anyone we wanted. What do you mean? (laughs) I'm surprised in your infinite wisdom you haven't even considered it. We don't know who or what country created the lab on Liberty Island. We don't know who left these bodies for us to port our minds into. But what if it was some enemy of the United States? They had plenty in the latter half of the 21st century, right? What if this technology was built by spies who looked different but wanted to be able to hide in plain sight? Bath was taken aback, surprised at the implication. You mean... American enemies from Russia, Asia, the Middle East? Probably. Cuddy paused a moment. He gazed up ahead at a row of destroyed storefronts, tall buildings with caved rooftops, more rubbish obstructing their path. But at the time our parents went underground, the United States enjoyed a period of peace with the Russians. They were on the verge of an alliance against China and Iran. John's thoughts fled to their colleagues, Donna Chang and Miral Ganaya. The engineer and physician were critical in operating the technology that resurrected General Benjamin Castro from cryogenic freeze. They were equally invested in Castro, Cuddy, and Bath's work to explore the surface and determine if it was habitable. John approached his companion slowly, turning so he could see the Major's deep brown eyes. "'Cuddy, why are you just now saying this? Why are you—' "'You brought it up,' Cuddy nodded, then turned Bass' attention to the monstrous plume of gray and black smoke billowing between buildings between them and Wall Street. Look. "'What the hell is that?' John heard metal crumbling, smoldering. Cuddy inched forward. Kasher said something about a spinning aircraft pursued by a drone. Come on, Cuddy commanded. He tore off towards the smoke. Bath followed, chasing the Major. They passed a broken-down Korean restaurant, emaciated bodies huddled together in an iron and cement alcove. Cuddy darted between buildings. When they emerged on Wall Street, a block from the site of the crash, John hesitated. At first, he thought Cuddy was leading them away from the destruction away from swarming scavengers and mutants piling on top of each other, plunging into flames and fumes. Then, Cuddy lurched forward, gripping the shotgun tightly. "'What are you doing?' Bath stopped where he was. "'We have to help them,' Cuddy said back. "'Major,' Bath called out, then softened his voice. "'Cuddy, you said it yourself. We've got to focus if we're going to meet up with the General. We can't go off on every well-intentioned misadventure.' McGillicuddy looked over his shoulder. Bath saw the chilling scowl when they first met. John insisted the law enforcement officer was a self-serving bully. Cuddy called the professor a coward. Neither had much time to reflect on this as they heard the sound of gunfire nearby. Where's it coming from? Bath held his satchel of cans and equipment near to him. Up above, Cuddy pointed to the skyscrapers looming overhead, Scatter. Bath hustled to the sidewalk on his left. He knelt low with his back to a building while watching survivors at the end of the street scramble into the crater of another fallen one. Bath watched as a mutant was shot through the throat. The man collapsed like an animal, abnormally long arms extended, fingers crawled, scratch at the pavement. They're not shooting at us, Bath called to Cuddy across the street. The Major leaned on one knee behind a busted automobile, fish in a barrel. Cuddy nodded towards the smoldering building and drone wreckage debris. John spied a woman in the scattering crowd, her semi-nude body painted in deep blue and white grease paint. Her appearance was unusual, but she didn't seem underfed or mutated. In that fleeting moment, Bath thought there was something almost sublime about her auburn hair and round features. "'Bath!' Cuddy's voice pulled him from his reverie. "'Back! Fall back!' Bath turned back to the woman as a slug ripped through the air, catching her between the shoulder blades. Crimson mist spattered, the woman collapsed. Disturbed, John moved a few inches back, trying to collect himself. He felt Cuddy's hand at his elbow. Keep running, Cuddy ordered. Gotta find another way to City Hall. Bath did as he was instructed. There was no doubt the Major was a better fighter and tactician, but Cuddy was also impulsive, prone to seek action. As they hurried away from what had once been a global center of commerce and trade, John's mind flooded with questions. Confusion over why those in the tower shot the mutants and scavengers below. What was to be gained? Bath wondered about the factions of the rockheads they encountered and the Morlocks they had yet to engage. His thoughts were interrupted by the image of the unclothed, painted woman dispatched by unseen killers. She didn't look like a mutant. What threat was she? In that moment, as they retreated, Bath would have done anything to be under the surface, safe and sound, in the Phoenix Project. Firepit Creative Group Production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Lauren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with contributions from Cole Hoopengarner and Willem DeGrieff. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner. Music by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. John Running Bear is based on a character created by Firepit Creative Group's close friend, Sam Ashu. The sound effects used in the production of Aftermath are used with permission by the creators, and links to these sound effects can be found in the description section of each episode. Please visit our website, aftermathpodcast.net, for updates, original artwork and music, character dossiers, and more. You can also find us on social media. On Instagram at firepitcreativegroupofficial, Creative group Official, on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Facebook at facebook.com slash creative group, and on YouTube at Fire Pit Creative Group. Aftermath and its story, characters, music, and artwork are copyrighted by Fire Pit Creative Group.